and welcome to Never Seen a Film Club, the film club where we watch films that you've never seen. I'm Emma Bainbridge from Accidental Theatre, and joining me as always is Robert J. Simpson from Cinepunk. That was very nicely rolled. What a shame we didn't get that at the start. I know. <laughs> I'll clip it in. It'll be fake. Thank you very much. Um, Happy New Year, everybody. Although it's kind of a weird Happy New Year for us, because it's technically the end of this season. We're finishing up. Raw! Jump gear. Robert's very excited. Um, he just wants to go off and watch The Room again. And again, and again. In a few minutes, bitch. People are very strange these days. So if you'd like Robert to come to your film club to watch The Room and speak about it, I... I, I would actually do that if people are willing to invite me to their film screening, especially if you want to hand me over some cash. I will do it. I will, I will sell my soul. I am basically a man whore. I will sell myself for cash. For Tommy Wiseau. For Tommy Wiseau, yeah. I mean, to be fair, what amount of cash would it take? Is it less or more than you think? <laughs> it's probably less than you think. <laughs> money, please. Oh, no, no, there's no money. <laughs> fair uh, I enough. mean, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm not that expensive, to be fair. Cheap, 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 cheap. If Tommy Wiseau himself asked me to work on his next film, Ooh. I would do that even after having watched the room more than once. Oh, pretty good. We got a new client. If he comes out with, what is it, Big Shark 2, uh, Electric yeah. Boogaloo. Mm -hmm. Then you could be his friend in it. And I mean, and part of me just wants to go to LA and, and sort of stalk him and demand a part, but, you know, <laughs> why? I mean... That would definitely make for an interesting mini-doc series. I've never seen a film club, so maybe we do that. If you want to give us money so that Robert can go stalk Tommy Wiseau in LA, please do send us any cash and or GANs that you have. Right around. Just cash, just cold hard cash. No no Bitcoin, because the fluctuation's bad. <laughs> money, please! Money, please. Ben. Anyway, we're back. And this month, we watched the 1981 Super classic, that is, Mommy Dearest. We're ready for you, Miss Crawford. To a truly great lady, Miss Joan Crawford. You need you to live a wonderful and advantaged life. You're a lucky little girl, and very expensive. I'm gonna make a perfect life for you. Are you having a happy birthday, Christina, darling? This is the best party I ever had. I love you, Mommy dearest. I love you, Tina, darling. No wire hangers. No wire hangers! No wire hangers! That's the only thing I think of any time I hear the name, Mommy dearest. So, I, unsurprisingly, this is a theme on this podcast, I have seen Mommy Dearest before. Had you seen it before Never Seen It Film Club? Surprisingly, no. <gasps> wow. Mm, this has been a season of films that, for the most part, I hadn't seen. Well, that's good. Mm. And this is a doozy because it's a two-hour, I think it's over two hours. Two hours, ten minutes. Um, biopic of Joan Crawford starring Faye Dunaway doing a very, very good um, impression of Joan Crawford. So, mm, when I did, when, when we did put it on, I did have to provide, like I did put a caveat at the very start of the screening to be like, guys, at any point, if you need a break, 
Mm. Come and tap me in the tech box because we can absolutely have a little half hour where we all regain our senses before we plow through this to our marathon of whatever mommy dearest is. Yeah, I kind of wish I had had that warning before I started watching it. Um, I sat down last night and watched it, uh, so I was nice and fresh for today. Um, and yeah, getting didn't take long to get into it to kind of go. Uh, what scene was it that made you want to to scream? Because I'll be honest, mm-hmm. it's five minutes in for me where I just wanted the, the the first time I saw this, I wanted the earth to swallow me whole. Um. Well, I guess my, my, the first observation I, I feel I should make, which is one that I have made repeatedly during the season, is I don't feel this film merits the designation of one of the worst films ever made. It's not that bad, objectively. It is overlit a lot. Um, we don't have that problem. And it has that feel of a kind of TV movie for the United States, like a Hallmark movie, but some of them are quite good. Mm. So, I mean, in, in that sense, I've seen a lot of stuff that is worse than this, and it definitely starts off very turgid. But once the kids are involved and the, the daughter's on screen, actually, it improves drastically, I think. Okay. Um, and then it just becomes hideously horrible because of the abuse that I see. And for me... I'm not, I'm not put off by the acting, which I gather, you know, it, it, they, they earned Razzie nominations, I think somewhat unfairly. Um, Faye Dunaway Fair. isn't bad. It's, it, it's, it's definitely partly because of her makeup. It's high camp. Yeah. Um, it is very theatrical. It's very over the top at times. But actually, the whole depiction, it sort of works with the character. And, like, I'm watching those scenes of her abusing her, her daughter and, it looks very real, it's very physical, mm. and it's increasingly uncomfortable as that goes on, as you realize, it. and I guess it's my experiences of having been in an abusive relationship all come back to the fore when I was watching that. It's, mm. you know, you sort of see how it starts off very small, little things, little kind of controlling comments and gestures, and then it gradually ramps itself up to more physical things. Um, so that, I think, is why I find it, uh, it's, it's, it's that, kind of resonance and it for me it felt very real it felt mm-hmm. like a very real depiction of what um an abusive personality is like or well, can be like yeah there was a lot of kind of back and forth after the film um mm. here we had quite a good discussion about it of being like a lot of us in the room kind of having experiences of people with like kind of um either bipolar disorder or um multiple personality disorder and things like that where mm. it's how quick someone can change mm-hmm. and i think that's one of the things that the film does actually do quite well is show how it's not big kind of sweeping insanity that can cause problems like this it is a small trigger yeah that can send someone off into the into the realms of beating a small child with a fucking coat hanger, which by all accounts is, well, we'll get into that in a second. Or just the the, the the scene that I found particularly difficult wasn't even the physical abuse scenes mm. per se, because again, I think some of the campness took that away from me. The thing that got me the most was the scene in the bathroom where, with she's, the floor where she the... starts scrubbing <clears throat> yeah. and like pouring pure bleach powder all over this like eight, to nine year old girl mm-hmm. and it's like we must like clean it clean it now because I'm like that 
kind of psychological warfare that someone has inside their own head is impossible to like mm. to to get into in any kind of a way. I don't think there's no way to. I don't think it was overly dramatic, like dramatized. I think those scenes in particular, mm-hmm. which tend to be the ones that people kind of make fun of and stuff. Case in point, hello. But I think those moments as heightened as those emotions are, are actually the realest for me. Yeah, Those feel like the most taken out of s- someone's kind of life because when you're, when you're at that kind of heightened emotional point, you're not pretending that you're, you are shrill, you are overstimulated and, and that kind of, and people get like that. And it is that dramatic. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. The makeup has a lot to answer for though. I feel like the eyebrows, well, the eyebrows alone, yeah, yeah. The slugs. And she's white for like, and I don't mean like white, but she's like Casper the ghost white a lot of the time. So she kind of just emerges with these big, sluggy, badly drawn on eyebrows and this Mm. huge red mouth, like it creeping out of the sewers. Hi, Georgie. Aren't you going to say hello? And I don't know if that's fair to Joan Crawford, but again, maybe it's because this is based on uh, Christina's autobiography. Maybe, and she, like, there's back and forth about Christina in this film. Hmm. Look into it. it. We'll maybe chat about it in a second. But initially, I think her kind of descriptions of what her mother was like is where they've picked this up from. So if you, for me, with the makeup and the kind of costume designs being over the top, I'm like, but if you're an eight-year-old child, that is kind of like the monster vision you have of somebody, I think. Well, I guess maybe that's part of it. I mean, I, I, I mean, I know Joan Crawford came from the silent era, and there is an element of the silent era in the black and white film stock that she was originally being shot on um, that probably follows through into the makeup where it would have been more exaggerated in order to create certain kinds of effects. And... You know, that point about her being like a monster to that child in terms of appearance because of that disconnect, I guess, because of that, that, that youth, um, maybe that maybe that is entirely appropriate. That does make you seem more scary, especially, I mean, Christina has talked about, actually, she did get to go on, on sets and stuff and see her mother at work, mostly in the dressing room. Mm-hmm. So she wasn't really allowed on set because her mother was involved in very kind of um, dramatic and adult-themed filmmaking and so she, if, if her experience is the dressing room which is where that makeup gets applied then maybe that is indeed mm. appropriate if that that falls through now i've not read any version of christina's memoir um so I, I i don't know how you know where the differences are massively there um but it's a it, it's certainly a valid point i mean it, it also works quite effectively to make her seem more ghoulish which mm-hmm. It's presumably the point that filmmakers want to try and do because there is that sequence in the bathroom that you talked about. And Crawford comes in with her night makeup on, her night mask, and she's screaming away. And she does look like a girl. Yeah. It, it, it's very, very pronounced in that point. It's very disorientating. It is like watching The Exorcist. Um, it's it's that kind of resonance, and that's obviously deliberate. They didn't want to paint Joan Crawford as a lovely human being with some flaws. Mm. I think she's largely painted as a monster that could dress like a lovely human being on occasion. So you, it's hard not to separate the the filmmaker's agenda yeah. from anything else. 
and the over lighting that they do is also part of the problem. I think in, in, in better lighting, that makeup might have might have worked better. Possibly, I do the the love of this film that I have um, comes from its references in pop culture, mm. uh, particularly again big surprise this is like the Grey Gardens episode all over again um, a lot of drag queens like mm. this film um, because it's th there's these kind of iconic moments and like it is very high camp and it is high drag and in, in the way that they have her but again if you look back at Joan Crawford's life um, and the way she presented herself she was that kind of she was really trying hard to be America's sweetheart mm. but there's always something just a little bit off like she is this Back in the day, she was probably like this very handsome. She like again, she's an attractive woman, but she was very handsome. She wasn't tr like that kind of pretty. So when she transitioned out of, as you said, the silent movie era, where like stronger looks were a benefit mm. to this kind of, if you look at like the the transition to the softer lenses and the kind of nicer, more delicate featured people that you start to get in the 40s and 50s, which is, I think, this is set in the late 50s, isn't it? Starts in 1939. Yeah. Um, and then runs through to her death in 1977. Yeah. So you're just getting to the point where, like, there you've got all these, like, delicate featured little, mm. little um, actresses coming out and getting all of the good roles. I mean, to a certain extent, she's like Goldie Hawn's character in First Wives Club. Mm. where she has gone from playing these really interesting, strong, independent women, and she's losing all those roles because she's too old, she's too fierce-looking, and she's a nightmare to work with. Is it Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard? It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Um, there, there's a quote out of John John Crawford's where she said, "You know, if you want the girl next door, go next door." Yeah. Like, don't go to her. Like that wasn't what she did. Um, she'd come up. She'd been a flapper. Then she moved to move into into sort of serious films. She'd done her best to lose her her southern accent, uh, and to present herself in a way that a lot of actors at that point couldn't do when making the transition to sign sign pictures. Um, but it, there is clearly, a, I mean, the point that we reach reaches when her career is kind of at its at its end point really i mean this is what 30 odd years before she dies so she is probably um in her mid-30s at this point yeah there's a there's a bit of a discrepancy about when joan crawford was actually born um but she's in her mid in her 30s heading towards 40 uh, you know she does feel a lot older at least in terms of the depiction of the film so there is that element of, of trying to work within a system and, and, and trying to find your place and being a little bit lost mm. And, and trying to do something else and to mold children in a way that, that she wasn't. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's fascinating, but it's, it, oh, yeah, it, it's not a favorable interpretation of Joan Crawford in any way, shape, or form. And I, I still find it very hard to not see anything but what she does with, the, with, her, with her daughter specifically. Uh, although, actually, you know, I mean, there's very little, there's a little bit about her son. Yeah. And I mean, the most shocking thing there is seeing him tied to the bed, um, which apparently she did so he wouldn't get up and walk to the toilet in the middle of the night. Um, but there are, she also had uh, three other adopted children. She did, yeah. One of which was taken back by its parents within weeks of the adoption. And then there were twin girls and they were about eight years younger. 
but they don't feature in the film in any way, shape or form. No. And I know it's partly because this is about Christina and Christopher's relationship with their mother and their experience was very different, supposedly, from the twins. The twins have always said that they had a great relationship. Mm. Um, and that is, I mean, I think that's a hard thing for people to understand as well, is that it, this is quite possibly a truth. And the other stories may also be a truth because you can be different things to different people. I think that's one of the most interesting things that when I looked into the kind of background of this film that I kind of discovered was how uh, Christina's autobiography, she said, like, it's quite true the screenplay. She has come out since and said that, you know, that parts of her were exaggerated and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, of course it is. It's a film. But for the most part, her experiences of, of abuse and stuff, she's kind of fairly stuck to. Mm-hmm. Same with Christopher. Christopher goes back and forth sometimes. He ta- he talks a lot about abuse as a young child mm-hmm. and kind of the being tied to the bed and stuff. He has also said that Christine is a liar um, to certain points. I don't think they had a great relationship for uh, towards the kind of um, last 20 years after this film came out because he was running around debunking it. But then I think again has since come out and said, well, you know, my relationship with my mother was was you know very difficult but it was ultimately this but I think it is an interesting point about how everybody has duality Mm. it is completely plausible that just because the twins had a good experience um that Christopher and Christine Christina didn't anyone who's got a sibling (laughs) knows this (laughs) I mean it's not hard for for me to imagine certainly because my parents were very different towards my brother than they were to me Mm. and in opposite ways like my growing up my like my brother was golden boy to my mum and still you know like until the day she died he was whereas I was a daddy's girl um my dad was very stern and very strict with my brother um but wasn't with me and then vice versa with my mother so it depends on who mm-hmm. like if you talk to me and my brother we had very different parents even though we lived in the same house <laughs> there's also a massive age difference between us though and he was a bit of a wanker to be fair uh, he's 15 <laughs> years older than me so my dad was dealing with like a, a boy like a 20 year old man and a five-year-old girl at the same time so maybe that's why but um, anyone else who has siblings can tell you that your parents definitely mm. can be different people in the same household to do like and mm. within the turn of a dime so that kind of rings true for me. So people who kind of come out and say, oh, you have to pick a side and, you know, Christine's a liar and exaggerating. I'm like, she's she's probably not because, and again, there's people can change a lot between children as well. Well, she's been very consistent as well. I mean, mm. she's, she's 84 now mm-hmm. uh, and she's still dealing with her stuff. She's written, I think, four or five books, all about issues of, most mostly about issues around abuse and, and particularly how women are treated mm. um and it, it, it is something that she has been consistent about um and even even the twins have come out and said look what's more the twins um children mm. uh, you know have talked about their experience with their grandmother and, and and said look you know we remember her very fondly we had good experiences she gave us presents etc etc um but we realized that christina's experience may have been different yeah um, and I think that you know, obviously, there's there's family tensions there as well, and there 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 is. We're in an era where it's much easier to. I think we generally accept when a child talks to you about abuse that that is significant. That there there's probably truth within that. Whereas in in the seventies, when she told her story for the first time in print in nineteen seventy eight, um, 
that was still frowned upon. This was looked as the first tell-all story, and it was the first story, it was the first book that told about the abuse of children from a child's perspective, from the the, the, the from, from the from the experience of a survivor um, mm -hmm. of that, from someone who had lived it. So it was it was it was it was groundbreaking, and I mean, clearly she, she's not happy about the way that the film depicts yeah. things. I wonder how much that's about how the film depicts her, as much as it is about how much it depicts the story. Because actually, the the, the beats are the same. The, the kind of the general stories, the the shocking bits, yeah. are in the book. They're in the interviews that Christina has given in the years since. Um, so I kind of wonder, is that where the, the, the issue is? And, and seeing yourself on screen played by somebody else can't be an easy experience. <laughs> I got, you know, I, I, that, that's got to be hard because you know that you'll remember a conversation. You go, we didn't say that. Yeah. Why are you putting those words in my mouth? You're making me seem like like something else. Yeah, especially someone who is depicting you based in your like based on a a book you've written about your worst lowest moments, mm. without any context of you as a whole person, and then doing a yeah, I d like I don't mind the I I'm terrible. I'm sorry. I'll insert it here. I can't remember the actress's name who plays Christina, but I like I think as a protagonist the the younger Christina mm -hmm. I just want to backhand um, she does come off a little bratty at times and that makes me feel like I should not have children because um, I would Joan Crawford it no I'm joking no I think the the very young Christina is very sweet and kind of gives like a good like nice gentle performance of a of a child who's been brought up in a kind of mad world mm. child actors are not usually my favourite thing um, personally, I don't think there should be child actors, but that's another conversation. Um, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, so she's quite good. Then older Christina, the... <laughs> I don't know. There's just something that I can't warm to her about. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's the writing of this, like if it's the dialogue or if it's her her essence. But there's something about her where I'm like, you are... A little bit of a dick, um, but she's not. She's like a perfectly like I. I think she like as a character, she's not bad in any way, shape, or form. I just think it might be that actress just irks me a little bit. I, I mean, she has, she she is sort of left having to play a character. The age is roughly between about what, 14, 13 and uh, well, near forty. Mm. Um, so it's it's quite a big. A big range to have for to, to ask of an actor. Um, she was twenty four at the time she played this. I think I got it. It's her haircut. That's it's a haircut. What, that's the problem. Never mind. Never mind. Um, yeah, I mean, there was something about it that didn't sit well with me either. But again, it comes back down, I think, to the stylization, the visual stylization. The film put me off more than anything else. Yeah. The the, the aesthetics of the sets, and of the costumes. And I know from having watched other stuff, it is something about the aesthetics of that era in Hollywood depicting earlier times just seems a little bit off in a way that sort of doesn't happen now. Yeah. Um, I think there's less care in the 80s for period pieces, for sure. Hmm. There's like, um, and even the late 70s, like if you look at anything, kind of those eras, unless it's a Western, weirdly, Hollywood kind of didn't care. It would just get bits and pieces and, and wouldn't really worry about it too much and just like MDF everything and kind of make uh, make do. Whereas now I think if you if you did this now, the opulence of that house and like the spark, 
it like even though it's supposed to be like this spit polished divine house, it always it looks a little bit not grotty, but there's as you said, there's like a matte finish missing. Like it's too dull or, or something for me where I'm like, I don't believe this as a as a as a as a location. And equally with the costumes, they all look a bit cheap and a little bit not quite there. So it's like 80s styling. Like the sleeves on the the birthday dresses. Mm. If you look up the pictures from the <laughs> that occasion, it's not these big fucking puffball sleeves that are three feet high. It they're just normal pioneer dresses. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's just the the, the the 80s love of the the pad coming in, the shoulder pad coming in. Um but yeah, there's something about the aesthetic of the film that's unsettling. It's very uncanny valley. It's like a remake of a better film for me. <laughs> if that makes any sense whatsoever. It's like did you ever see the shot for shot remake of of Psycho? Yeah. This yeah. is kind of what this feels like. I mean, there's definitely a story to be had in there, and it, it probably it actually probably does merit a reworking. Um, I know that Christina has a, a produced a musical version at one point, um, which I've, I've, I haven't delved into in any in any detail at all. Um, I think the story is is strong enough. I think that the account is strong enough. I think the characters are strong enough that it could well be another film, mm. and maybe with twenty twenty four sensibilities and. 2024 kind of production values it would be a really good biopic and probably an Oscar winner let's be honest yeah um, I'd agree with that this this just I, I mean I think the other problem with this film is it came I mean, this, this, this was released in 1981 Joan Crawford died in 1977 there's barely four years between the two events um, in the meantime I mean the film ends with the point where the will is being read and Christopher and Christina are deliberately left out of receiving anything now eventually they, they they sued the estate they managed to get 55 grand between the two of them mm. which was a fraction the twins got 75 grand each mm. 75 77 each um so there's a, there's definitely an issue there as well this just maybe was too close to the event uh, there were far too many people there who were thinking look she's she's barely cold in her grave you don't go around saying things like this about people when they've just died. This is of a different era when that kind of respect for the recently deceased, um, there were there was customs, there was there was practices. I mean, it's not like now. I mean, even now though, there is that way where you kind of got to wait a little bit of time and then you can start to tell the stories. Yeah. And I, I think that maybe we'd believe it now in a way, probably a little bit quicker than 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 then, because we're more used to it. Yeah, I would say so. It would have been. I think it would have been interesting as well because I think having if in nineteen eighty one, if you had your 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 parents who'd grown up watching Joan Crawford movies mm. and just knowing her as like and again tabloids in that kind of in the sixties and stuff were very localized, especially like Hollywood Tatler and stuff mm -hmm. would been very localized to like L A and like certain states like New York and stuff. Mm. They weren't like. The National Enquirer is not even now. Like, so these kind of like behind the scenes tidbits of what a nightmare Joan Crawford is to work with don't kind of trickle out into the general populace um, the way that it would not. It's definitely not the way it would now. So if you had people who'd grown up with this screen legend who they'd seen as this just very um, proper lady uh, for most of their lives mm. um, who was well-spoken and, and was in Mildred Pierce, which is possibly like 
it's definitely my top 100 films of all time. I think it's great. Um, and then showing them this, mm. the disbelief and the disgust that they must have felt would have been like it would have been an interesting gauge, uh, certainly for me. So I think you're 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 right. If you made it now, I don't know. I think the time frame would be a would have been a lot shorter. But I think people would be much quicker to be like, oh, absolutely. Did you see that new biopic mm -hmm. of Joan Crawford? Everything in it is absolutely true. There's no pinch of salt. It's like the Blind Side. <laughs> Blind Side came out and suddenly everybody knew all about um, this athlete's life. They everything was completely 100% true, and come to find out, none of it's not none of it's true. But lots of it is greatly exaggerated. They have been in court now for the last year and a half um, for Michael Orr. Um, and good as Sandra Bullock is in that film, because she's great, the amount of sympathy that that family got for like being these white saviors and like people just wanted to believe something about it. But when you bring out the, the, the dirt, they people are like, oh no, not them. They couldn't possibly. There's a film about them saying how good they are. Um, so I think it goes both ways, certainly. Yeah, as you said, like as you point out, the, the way that the Hollywood system worked back in the 40s and 50s and 60s when this the bulk of this film was set, there was a different kind of system in place. It took longer for, for stuff to get out. Um, the tabloid magazines did exist. The fan magazines existed. Uh, and apparently, I was reading a, a Larry King interview with Christina earlier on today, and supposedly there was uh, the Confidential, which was one of the, the US kind of celebrity tabloid things at the time, were ready at one point to produce a front page story all about how bitchy and horrible and abusive Joan Crawford actually was and it got nixed by the studios because again those papers were also in league with the studios who had to protect their stars and Crawford did work for eight of the seven of the eight or eight of the nine big studios that, that were in Hollywood at the time mm -hmm. the only one she didn't do was Paramount I think it was Paramount who distributed Mummy Dearest yeah. um, ironically enough but she did MGM and, and Warner Brothers and, mm -hmm. and, and, and everything else uh, so there is that it, it, the stories can exist and also I mean like I keep reading bits about um, oh gosh who was it her first husband oh god I've been to his grave as well so I should know she has a lot of them momentarily lapse of memory of viewers this is what happens when you have to watch it's not John Barrymore um, Douglas Fairbanks Jr there you go I hadn't even Googled it, guys. It's in there. It's in there. Uh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. says that, you know, this wasn't his experience of the woman that he knew when he was married to her. And I, I think that's absolutely fine because maybe his experience at that time wasn't, was actually of something that was very different, that was much more pleasant. And it's only when Joan gets a bit older, um, it's only as her, her own instabilities get worse. It's also as, as the system uses her differently, yep. as she receives success and entitlement and then has children... All those things change relationships. Yeah, especially when you take into... I think one of the glaringly obvious things to me, um, having watched this film, and it's a it's just a throwaway line quite near the start. It's about Joan Crawford's inability to have children. Mm. Um, and that's fine, but she's had several miscarriages at this point. And now, as a modern audience, we're very aware that if someone goes through that amount of trauma, it's going to have an impact on not only their relationship with other people, but with themselves as well. Mm -hmm. 
So I think if you knew a younger Joan Crawford before all this terrible stuff had happened to her, because it's an it's a hard thing to go through. Yeah. Um, then I think that on top of all the other stuff that she's also had to deal with, like, because let's be honest, the studio system, not ideal for anybody to go through. Wouldn't recommend it. They're sort of trying to bring it back. I don't think we should. I think we should leave it in the past because it wasn't, it wasn't ideal to be a woman in the studio system, um, especially one as, as outspoken as Joan Crawford, which is another thing that gets my goat up because I'm like, was she actually a nightmare to work with? Or was she just somebody with a backbone? That's the other thing. And at that time and place, I mean, I'm sure Betty Davis would huh. definitely disagree with me. But she's also dead, so she can't. Um, I just think that, again, this what's lost in this film particularly, and again, I don't know if it's because it's from one person's point of view, it's this, we lose the kind of duality of existing as humans mm. I think there's an expectation of us to be one way all of the time forever and like this this thing that people don't change and I don't mean that in like a big romantic sweeping people can change way I'm like just naturally as things happen to you you you, you develop a you either go one of two ways you either become hard boiled egg and get tougher and less malleable over time mm. or you go the other way and you become a soft banana and things just downtrod you and you become a mushy little mess that's my philosophy it's 10.99 on my ebook hard-boiled egg or banana choose your path but i just i think that's what's missing from this this film for me is that it's all one side of a person I think there's a little bit of softness, though. I mean, as the story goes on, I think there is a softer element of Joan Crawford that starts to come in. There's just not a lot of time spent with it. Yeah. Um, I know there's a bit of dispute about... Uh, there's a different attitudes regarding whether or not Joan Crawford actually took on the role of her daughter, uh, her, her daughter's part in that soap opera, out of an act of kindness to make sure that the job was still there for her daughter, which is actually what the producers of that soap opera said. Mm -hmm. um, or if it was just a, an attempt to kind of undermine and get back on TV, which, I mean, it's interesting. Um, but the older Crawford who can't go to, who, who literally now can't go to the awards ceremonies because she's too elderly, because mm. she's too frail, because um, she's a, an old soak, basically. Uh, you know, there, there's there's definitely a, a, a softening. Mm. Um, Banana. Yeah, a little bit, but it, 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 again, it doesn't go far enough. We don't see enough of that before she has the children. We don't see enough of that after. Um, and it seems also true of Christina. Mm -hmm. I, I think that there's, you know, the stories about her from other people that have worked with her are a little bit more complex. Yeah. Um, she is not always painted as the nicest of people. Um, some people have found her very difficult to work with, said that she can't take direction or instruction whenever she worked as an actress. Um, these these are not my opinions. I've never worked with her. These are the opinions of people who are on record as saying this. And there is an element of like, when you hear something like that, you feel that that's something that is probably worth discussing. Clearly, Christine has painted as quite obstinate mm. and determined and is willing to fight her ground. I mean, that that scene over the, the stake on the one hand, I kind of feel this is absolutely horrible bit of abuse of a child. I mean, I, I, I dare say most families up and down the country at some point will have had to use the, if you don't eat this now, this, you're going to get served this later on yeah. kind of argument as a, in a futile attempt to get their children to eat. Um, 
But that one goes on and it goes on and it's really uncomfortable. But at the same time, you kind of think, well done you for holding your ground and, and, and Christina and, and saying no to this, that this is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a couple of elements where you see her pretending to be her mother, telling off, you know, kind of posing, doing an award acceptance speech and then telling off her own teddy bears using the language that obviously her mother uses at her, yeah. which again, uncomfortable, but also brilliant. And and you kind of wonder, like, th- there's an element of her aping her mother within that that doesn't get explored enough. And again, I do wonder how this would be approached after Christina dies, if they were to remake it. Yeah. Um, you, I, I feel that maybe that, that that's material that would probably be expounded on further. And maybe, again, this is where the, the film is lacking. Why... Because you can't do that then because she's alive. Because yeah. she will sue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definition of character. Yeah, yeah I think it would really, be a really interesting project. I think where this would be really kind of good is in my new favourite thing, which is uh, TV series that are mm. five episodes long and shot very well and are great, but don't either... Again, I have a... Th- All right, I'm going to get into it just for a second. Just come here, bear with me. I'm of the opinion that film should be 90 minutes long. 80 to 90 minutes is more than enough for a film. I say that. Two of my favourite films, Jaws and Science of the Lambs. Let's not get into it. But I think there's a new trend at the moment, and certainly this film feels like that, even though for a different reason, maybe, where big directors and big names get to make these two and three hour long films that should be cut up into five episodes of a decent TV show where they can explore themes a lot better. And I think a Ryan Murphy version of Mommy Dearest would be very good. And I think it would be an interesting, he would take an interesting spin on it, but I think you're right. I think you'd have to wait until Christina's dead and can no longer sue. Her estate can try. Hmm. But um, it's one of those things of like, with the crown and stuff as well, like depicting people that are still alive and still active and stuff and who could still potentially see the depiction of themselves. Hmm. I find it a little creepy. I'm not a big fan of biopics that feature people who are still alive. It's not my favourite. It's it's complex because you know that whenever they do it, the same one if you've got a, a biopic that has involved someone in the, the process. Uh, I haven't seen Priscilla yet, um, which I know about Priscilla's, based on Priscilla's memory of her relationship with Elvis Presley. But that obviously has issues. Um, Priscilla's daughter had issues with the film and the, and the screenplay. Her mother obviously doesn't and has given it her full approval. There's a there's a complexity there. If you look at something like, was it the Johnny Cash biopic? Johnny yeah. Cash was very involved in that. I think Ray Charles was involved in his biopic right. up until the point where they pass and the film gets released after. But that still influences what gets done. So if you've got official, any any project that is authorised by an individual or a company is already tainted and skewed because you can't avoid it in order to get that official stamp of approval, in order to get the the, the benefits that that gives you. Mm. You have to make compromises and they have to approve. And it is a very rare individual that will sit down and go, do you know what, warts and all, that's fine, you do whatever you want. Yeah. Um, and when you've got people that are alive, there are libel laws that yeah. exist for a good reason. And you know, you can do a certain amount with dramatic license with it. Um, the Weird Al biopic is clearly a parody, so he's able to get away with it. Yeah. Um, 
but because you have that, that because those laws exist, you depict someone in a certain way, you have them doing a certain action that they've never done, you will find yourself at the end of a major lawsuit. And that's something that those parties can't afford to do. Mm -hmm. So that's why the individuals that we see depicted in this are largely either anonymous or they're, they're composites or they're dead. Yeah. Um, Christopher is hardly featured at all. And the one thing that he's that, that kind of is featured is the him being strapped to the bed. And he's on record with that. Mm -hmm. Christina, it's Christina's story. So that's why she's there. That's why the twins aren't there. Because to picture the twins in that um, would have run the risk of, of a, a legal suit. Which happened to Christina later on. They did sue mm -hmm. um, on the 20th anniversary tour whenever they were doing the book. Whenever she republished the book. Um, because, they, because of the way that they were depicted. They, they said it was wrong. And there was an out-of-court settlement for five grand, not a lot of money, but there was a settlement. So all these things are, are, are complex. And it does mean that when you watch something, you, you have to bear that. When you watch a biopic, you have to bear that in mind. Mm -hmm. um, I like a biopic. Okay. Hollywood likes a biopic. Fuck it, yeah, they um, I th and, and Hollywood likes biopics that are about the arts and the media because it's them looking at themselves, making films about themselves. It's what they know. So... All that stuff, all that trappings about this, they're okay. I mean, like, I was watching it last night and, and you know, my, my my partner didn't have a clue, you know, doesn't yeah. know who the actors are, doesn't know about the stuff, you know, so it's it, it's meaningless. Mm -hmm. So what you then concentrate on is the relationship between those two mm -hmm. and the relationship between mother and daughter is is, is interesting. It's it's hostile, it's it's fraught, it's tense, it's a, it, it's complex, it's it's horrible. Mm. Um, but it is also nuanced, you know, you, you have... You have elements of, of a relationship that's not just about abuse, but there is some sort of affection in there, I think. Oh, yeah. Hard I, to understand, but it's there. Again, I think this speaks a lot to the complexity between, A, parents and their children in general, but I think it does bring up an interesting topic of adoptive parents and their children mm. as well, um, where you can, again, definitely have the duality of a very complicated relationship. Um it's something that, like, growing up, because no secret, like, I, I grew up, I was an, an adoptive person, and there is an element that you'll never get over that you're not their biological child. Mm. So you can't, you'll, ne like, again, not speaking for everybody who's adopted, but for me and other people I've talked to, there is just this element in your head that's like, they don't love me enough, and I will never be enough because we're not biologically linked. And then there's a certain element in your head that goes, are they being mean to me because I'm not real? Mm. So I think that, that, and I think that's what Christina explores very well. Um, having read element, like bits and pieces of the book and like watching this, I think that kind of, she says it without saying it, the, that complex relationship between everybody and their parents. But mm -hmm. when they're a mega superstar and horrifically physically abusive and mentally abusive maybe it's a little bit more interesting uh to watch but i don't know um i don't know it's a like it's nice that there's a film about a complicated parental relationship because ultimately that's what i view this film as people call it a joan crawford biopic and i'm like that's incorrect it's not no, it's, it's, not. it's really an exploration of of christina's point of view of the relationship she had with her mother mm -hmm. um although having said that the don't fuck with me fella scene might be my <laughs> the best moment in any movie i've ever seen mm. ever don't fuck with me fellas
This ain't my first time at the rodeo. And I quote it, not daily, because that would be a, a bit much. Um, but I quote it often, especially upstairs at Accidental Theatre when we're doing uh, tech meetings. And I'm the only woman sitting in the room. <laughs> and I get to say it loud. <laughs> but that's it. So all in all, yeah, it's a long, interesting, scarring, jarring look into complicated relationships with parents, children, coat hangers, bleach, straps, and Hollywood. And dresses and cake and, and things like that. Because that also is just... But anyway. So, it's... I Again, it, uh, the reason it's on the list, I always have to explain why stuff's on this list, especially the Z-list season. The next season, not so much. But this season... Um, Mainly, it's the the chewing. I would say that Faye Dunaway chews the scenery, but again, as we've discussed, it might be because she is characterizing a certain point of view of a character. Personally, uh, her makeup is terrible. Your makeup is terrible, but I love you anyway. Uh, the sets are awful. The lighting is very very bad, and it's just, to my mind, not a great film. And features a lot on lists for being Z-list. And I agree. Robert might not agree, but I think it should be on this list. Maybe quite low down on the list. No, I, I, mean, I think I think not, not Z-list, not proper Z-list territory. The, 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 there's some stuff there, I think, because of its topic, because of, of its timing, um, I think it merits something a bit more. Um, I get that it was... You know that it kind of wasn't well received at the time that it that people did lambast it, but also it did provoke a lot of conversations. It was a certain kind of success, mm. and I find it hard to look at the Z list as as being feature films that had a certain amount of success and notoriety, unless they were shite. Um, I mean, the room has been quite a success in an ironic, in a weird kind of way, but it, it it's un, uh, unquestionably bad. This, I think, does have some stuff. I think it's I think it's over long. I agree with that. Um, cut out a big chunk of the start, and I, I think it would be a much better film. I, I I don't know if we need the bit before the kids arrive. Mm -hmm. uh, it feels very slow and very awkward, and then it kind of gets. And I think some judicial trimming throughout it would have done it a lot of good. Mini series is definitely the way for this to be reapproached. I think so. Um, and maybe give a bit more into both Joan's history and also Christina's history, both of which are kind of interesting in their own right. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I think it's merits a remake. I think merits looking at again. I think the story itself is fascinating and well worth looking into. Um, but Z list, it it just ain't. It's it's it feels like a TV movie and. I kind of just lump it in with them. Yeah, okay, you know, that's fair. if you if you tell me tell me this is going to features and in, in, into cinemas, and I have a bigger issue with it. But if you say this is a TV movie, um, it is what it is. I can go, yeah, this is a TV movie. It feels like it. It feels like a TV biopic, mm -hmm. and I'm okay with that. Fair. But like, cut twenty minutes out of it at least twenty five. Get down to an hour forty five, and I think this is yeah, it's bearable. Either cut this down, director's cut it down to an hour and 45. Regrade it. Re yes, fuck me. Regrade it, 
the audio was also pretty terrible. The the levels in it are fucking woeful, but that's me. Everything's on the left channel. Go figure. I don't know why. Um, Marty, if you're listening to this podcast, please tell us why they decided to do that because it was a nightmare to balance in the room. Anyway, um, but that's it. That's the last film that we have to see. That's a bad film probably for a couple of months because um, our next season, as picked and as displayed below here probably, uh, as chosen by the Never Seen a Film Club members, is let's talk about sex. Sex positive films that make you think. So we've got some great ones on that list. It's, a, it's, a, it's definitely going to push the boundaries um, and comfort levels of some people, I think, which is great, which is what I like to do. Um, and we've got some classics in there. We've got She's Gotta Have It. We've got bon, uh, Belle du Jour. We've got uh, E2 Mama Tambien, Bound, Cruel Intentions. So it's again, it's a good mix. You'll notice that there's nothing beyond 2010. That's not my fault. That's just what happens. Um, but we have got some, we might even sprinkle a few extra screenings through this season. So we might do some secret podcasts. We don't know yet. I, I mean, I haven't been involved in this in any way, shape or form. So don't come blaming me if nope. your favorites aren't in there. Uh, I'd have thrown a couple of curveballs in for you. I might still do that. Yeah, I think that might be on the agenda. Mm. But thank you for joining us today. Thank you for supporting Accidental Theatre and Cinepunk and this podcast. We're very happy to have almost 100 subscribers. <gasps> we are, I think, at this moment in time at 97. So we're three to go. That's so if bad. you know three friends, get them to, to subscribe because it would mean a lot just because it's a round number and we would appreciate it. But we very much thank you for joining us today you can follow accidental theater on most things at accidental theater it's very easy to find just google it um, <laughs> links are here below but where can the lovely people follow you guys uh you'll find cinepunked on most platforms we are generally speaking cinepunked uh, although on instagram or cinepunked film and you'll find me as well just google my name uh, robert j simpson and i'll turn up on most social media platforms yeah and will haunt your, your dreams and your nightmares. Just like Joan Crawford. Don't fuck with us, fellas. See you next time. <laughs>